You're listening to Making Waves on WGXC. I'm your host, Becca Sims. On today's program, we'll listen to a conversation between myself and Canadian composer John Oswald, who is the keynote speaker at this year's Toronto International Electroacoustic Symposium, taking place from August 10th to 13th. During the symposium, coinciding with our Sound Travels Festival of Sound Art, John's music will be featured on a concert on August 12th, taking place at Geary Lane in Toronto. His music is sharing the bill with that of Montreal-based composer Paul Dolden. The concert will feature three of John's works, including Vertical Time, a work that started in 1973 and was revised in 2012, Skindling Shades, a piece given to choreographers as a replacement to Stravinsky's The Firebird, and Dab, from the seminal album Plunder Phonics. Before I ask you about some of the work that's going to be presented during Sound Travels and Ties, I'm wondering if you could speak a little bit about the philosophical or artistic impetus for your early work in the 1970s. Well, I don't know how philosophical I was uh, about that because I was a a teenager in high school in the early 70s. And prior to that, um, when I, before I was even a teenager, I was playing around with sound a bit. Uh, I sometimes say that my first instrument was a shortwave radio. It was actually a little portable uh, AM shortwave radio. Uh, I just tended to spend more time tuning around the funny noises that you could get on the shortwave than I did at first listening to AM radio. Uh, So there was both a radio connection and, uh, in a sense, although I hadn't heard that term, an electronic music uh, connection back then in the uh, early 60s. And by the mid-60s, I had started reading about and uh, then getting the opportunity to buy records of um, seminal electroacousmatic composers who were active in the 50s and 60s. And that brings us up to the 70s. So one of the first pieces I made uh, was this thing, Vertical Time, which was originally done as a soundtrack for uh, an experiment in uh, live video feedback improvisation. This was at Simon Fraser University. The idea was to take uh, TV snow, that kind of... uh, granular, fast-moving stuff you see when on an analog channel when there's no signal. I don't know if that still makes any sense. Does it? I certainly recognize it. I'm not sure if somebody who's about 10 oh. years old now would recognize it. But you know. how, do we de- how, we, how do we describe it without seeing it? It is a bit like snow, although it is all the, the grayscale uh, uh, degrees of variation from uh, light to dark. Uh, so it has a snowy effect. And uh, with feedback and keying and things, you're able to um, do a lot of very fast-moving kind of light show-like things. In the 60s, I had seen uh, a couple of uh, uh, psychedelic rock kind of light shows that uh, particularly that had come up from San Francisco, um, but uh, other shows in Toronto with Jimi Hendrix and guys like that. Uh, and in a way, this was a digital version of that. Uh, 
uh, no, I, sh I, well, I shouldn't say digital. We were still using analog video cameras. So it was a, it was a video version of something that was a pure uh, light projection thing in the 60s. And uh, the soundtrack I made uh, also was an exploration of uh, something that I was curious about from having read that uh, white noise, which in a, a way is the audio equivalent of, of uh, this TV snow, uh, was a random accumulation of all frequencies of sound. In, uh, I mean, it wasn't told to me, but it sounded like it was constantly active, so I imagined that it was in short little bursts in all sorts of frequencies, but I wasn't sure. Uh, and I was also interested in what I found to be a very beguiling sound, which was the sound of a sine tone, something purer than a, a flute note, uh, and something that uh, uh, one would hear in various ways with a few recordings that were around of, of theremins. And, uh, and I also had a couple of opportunities to hear uh, theremins in, in 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 live performance. There's a group in Toronto called Intersystems, which may have had one. I don't remember. There was a a band that put out a couple of records called Lothar and the Hand People, <laughs> that also had a theremin in it. And of course, there was uh, one of my favorite songs of the '60s, "Good Vibrations" by the Beach Boys, that has a prominent theremin in it. And I really like that sound. So, so was, I'd also go sorry. Ahead. So there was influences coming sort of from all directions. Yeah, I was a kid. I was susceptible to pretty well anything, uh, and uh, I think I had a tendency to, uh, and this just comes out of curiosity to find things that I hadn't heard before. So uh, un unusual sounds were the most interesting, but there's also just a visceral. Uh, sensual attraction to certain sounds. I didn't have a particular attraction to white noise, but I liked the sound of the sign tone. I read up a bit on it and learned that uh, a sign tone was a very pure, simple wave. And uh, I also had read, uh, but hadn't heard any examples of people building synthesizers that consisted of oscillators that would play I think in one case, uh, somebody was constructing something with a thousand sine tones in order to make uh, more complex uh, timbral structures. Um, uh, and I thought, well, if the sine tone's the simplest thing and the white noise is in a sense the most complicated thing, having all the pitches in it and the sine tone in a steady state only having one pitch, I wonder if it's possible to make some sort of continuum between a sine tone and uh, uh, a white noise uh, feel, sound, sound field, or as was another popular thing at the time, a wall of sound, as Phil Spector would say. Uh, so again, uh, well, I was still at Simon Fraser, and I was working in the Sonic studio there that was uh, mostly started by Murray Schaefer. Barry Truax came in the same year I was there, which would be 73, I think. Yes, I read that Barry Truax was listed as sort of an encouraging force in your early endeavors. Uh, yes, uh, probably the most encouraging one, especially, I, I mean, there was a really good group of people at Simon Fraser, but uh, Barry 
seemed to actually like and promote these things I was doing. There was another whole series of things that had to do with uh, the uh, readings by William Burroughs of his, his works that were cut up in William Burroughs kind of fashion that Barry uh, continues to promote, which I very much appreciate. So there was just a really good artistic vibe going on at Simon Fraser at the time? Yeah. Yeah, Barry worked out elsewhere. He was down in the basement working on uh, uh, computers down there, uh, a computer, but it filled up a whole room, and it was very noisy, and it was very bright, and I preferred being up in the Sonic studio where you could turn off the lights and you just had the illumination of uh, a Buchla synthesizer and uh, a Moog synthesizer, modular synthesizers, and uh, the VU meters of the tape recorders. The tape recorder has been, I think, my main instrument, but uh, a lot of these sounds were generated through and filtered through for uh, vertical time were uh, generated and filtered through the the Bukla in particular, with the Moog being something that I liked to play when I was taking a break. Uh, The filtering was uh, chiefly taking uh, white noise, that really broadband sound. I don't know how that's going to come out on the radio. And uh, uh, filtering it as narrowly as possible to try to get a specific pitch. Uh, And you'd get kind of a whistling, impure uh, version of something similar to a sine tone, uh, but not exactly a sine tone. But that could easily be morphed into a sine tone from that point. And then I took the sine tone and I started multiplying it and particularly glistening sign tones, taking an oscillator that had a big dial on it and spinning it around up and down to get uh, uh, sweeping pitches, glisses that were, uh, or just really one sweeping pitch that would go all over the place for each track that I would record on uh, a four-track tape recorder, and then and then I would keep bouncing them and make uh, thousands of these uh, layers of these gliss things in order to try to get something that would have at any one moment, not maybe, perhaps not all f- frequencies, but a lot of the frequencies um, being traversed. Uh, and therefore I made some kind of, by, by, that, by those means I made some kind of a noise that s- sounded like maybe it was in the territory of white noise, but it, it had its, its own timbre. Was the end sonic result of vertical time sort of the first instance of your technique that you've called swarming? Uh, I think yes. I'm pretty sure yes. And this sort of became an, an a recurring... Side note, uh, that, an interesting side note is that Paul Dolden showed up there several years later. And uh, I think vertical time was something that uh, uh, Barry Truax didn't take notice of. So I'm sure Paul did this all on his own, but he started getting into the idea of uh, well, his own kind of swarming, which is a much more structured kind of uh, huge multi-tracking. Uh, and Barry has often pointed out that it seems kind of weird that these two guys would go off on these tangents of, of doing um, uh, projects that involved hundreds and thousands of multi-tracks. Must have been something in the air over there. Yeah, in this little four-track studio. And this type of sound is something that you return to quite frequently over the years, correct? Yeah, it's a nice way of doing things. 
I, I did discover that uh, yeah, sound effects people for movies, uh, particularly in Hollywood, uh, would use these kind of various uh, techniques of, of multiplying sounds in order to get a bigger effect for an earthquake or whatever. Uh, uh, something that I was looking for, I remember another idea I had back around 73, 74, was that perhaps I could make a sound that was like a sculpture. And I think I had read about uh, some things that Alvin Lussier had been doing. And uh, this one piece in particular that he made for uh, uh, dancers, uh, uh, the name of the choreographer escapes me right now, in New York, that involved uh, having sign tones tuned in a room in such a way that as you walked around the room, you would find places where it was really quiet and places where it was really loud, uh, not necessarily in proximity to the speakers, but in nodes where the, the these simple signals were canceling each other out. Uh, there'd be a negative wave of the sign tone hitting a positive wave another of another sign tone, and you'd get a, uh, a relatively quiet spot. And the dancers uh, had instructions to delineate those corridors that were made by these sounds, and that seemed very interesting. And I was, uh, but I had a, the picture of a mass of sound, some kind of a sculpture that you could walk around, and it would be so dense that it. For at least some people, or perhaps just me, it would be an interesting thing that would be steady state. Uh, I, I, I think I didn't think of it as a drone, but it really was a drone, uh, but uh, a, a spatial drone also that would change as you moved around the sound in the same way that um, walking around a sculpture will give you a, a very different view and aspect of, of that sculpture. So you became sort of like an acoustic architect. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. Well, on that note, actually, I wanted to talk about uh, one of the things that's going to be featured through NASA this summer, which is your installation for the crystal at the Royal Ontario Museum, A Time to Hear for Here. Oh, yes. Yeah. So a part of that is going to be installed at the Canadian Music Centre this August. And I wanted to ask how the initial work sort of came to be and if, if you foresaw the grand macro scale that it would eventually become. Well, it may seem kind of silly or just my luck how uh, the commission was um, initiated. Uh, my next door neighbor, uh, who I didn't know that well, leaned over the fence in the backyard one day and asked if I would uh, make uh, a sound environment for them at, uh, in their new building at the ROM. Your next and, door neighbor. Uh, yeah, she was a fundraiser for the ROM and they were looking for somebody and she says, I think that guy next door to me does something like that. Oh my gosh. So it wasn't, um, uh, the, there didn't seem to be any great honor involved. It just seemed like they would just take anybody to do it. Uh, <clears throat> which may or may not be the case. They may have done more research than that, but uh, uh, I, I went in and made an, a proposal to make this um, sonic clock, really, something that uh, keeps the time, keeps the time in many ways, uh, similar to some chronometers, um, uh, famous mechanical chronometers from previous centuries that would show uh, celestial movements in addition to uh, local clock time and perhaps clock time in other, in other uh, 
parts of the, the planet and uh, the seasons and phases of the moon and all that sort of stuff. So this uh, sonic clock, which uh, was to fill, which did fill uh, this uh, cavity in the middle of this new building they were making, it was the space that uh, was left over, this crevice that was made by the uh, unparalleled walls of the various galleries in the museum on um, five levels. And uh, so it's a quite tall, narrow, craggy-like space that uh, being all uh, plaster and uh, iron-grade floors on the various levels and on these crosswalks, uh, it's a very live room also, so it has a bit of that um, uh, uh, resonant aspect of a, um, more like a church than a, uh, than a lot of spaces. So uh, there was already a plan to put a multi-channel sound system in place. Uh, I managed to get some revisions made uh, to... Uh, both that placement and supplementing that. So there were uh, speakers that were put under the grates and the floors, as well as above people uh, from all angles. So they'd be surrounded wherever they were by part of this, the sound, not all of the sound in this place, because it exists on, as I said, five levels, and four of those levels are accessible. And also the kind of uh, very focused laser-like speakers uh, uh, that were just being uh, developed back then, about 10 years ago now, or being introduced uh, commercially, where you could have something that you hear in one spot and you don't hear in another spot. Uh, all of which were put to the purpose of uh, different ways of presenting sound that was either uh, associated at some point in the world with a certain time of day. Uh, for example, usually around midday in Toronto, you would hear coming from the very top of this, this chamber, a solo voice singing the Azan or the, uh, the Muslim uh, call to prayer, uh, which they uh, 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 do at sunrise and sunset. In this case, it, it was always synchronized to sunset in Mecca. So when you heard the Azan in Toronto, the sun was going down in Mecca. And we just had the computer synchronize the, its clock each day with the sunsets in Mecca. So it would be a, a, a yearly uh, cycle for that. Uh, there were sounds that happened in regular chron chronometric time uh, that signaled uh, a sound mark in uh, um, a, a city or town in each of the time zones across Canada that uh, happened during the opening hours of the museum. So you'd hear the noon gun in uh, St. John's, if I'm correct in remembering that was St. John's had the noon gun uh, at, uh, uh, oh, that'd be on the half hour. Maybe it was St. John, not St. John's. Uh, well, an example that I do remember is at three o'clock in the afternoon in Toronto, you would hear the noon horn playing the first four notes of O Canada in Vancouver. And you could set your watch to that, and you could set your watch to Vancouver time, but you'd also know, well, if it's 3 o'clock in Vancouver, it must be noon in Toronto. So in a way, it was instructive, but it also just gave an a, a, a odd way of listening to the world 
through uh, this this uh, sonic clock. There were also lots and lots of random sounds. There there were things that were generated uh, that were again associated, well in this case, with uh, sunrise. Sunrise in Northeast Australia, but there was a, a, a dawn chorus that was generated each day, so it was a little bit different. Birds would happen, the same birds, but they would happen in different orders. There were a lot of sounds, particularly sounds that notifies you that the subway doors are closing or that a streetcar is arriving. Um, uh, there were very long-scale things, uh, well, in a sense, not long-scale things, but something things that were based on calculations that had taken place over years. So. Every it's a little bit less than 20 minutes, there's a, a gong that goes off, and we called that the extinction gong. And when I mentioned extinction, uh, Phil Strong was, was very instrumental in uh, helping me program what happened there. And was he and I were there every day uh, working on this stuff. And um, the extinction gong just indicated that oh, another species has disappeared from the earth. So another aspect of that up, uh, was up in a kind of a, a, a seldom visited dead end corner of one of the crosswalks in the upper uh, level were these two laser speakers. Again, the ones that you only hear when you're standing in their very narrow path. And these two crossed at an angle. And if you stood in a certain spot, depending on how tall you were, etc., uh, you would hear in one ear, uh, this bing, uh, bing, 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 about that frequent, but uh, uh, completely randomized, but having a certain periodic density. And those uh, represented an estimation of people being born in the world. And then in the other ear, you'd hear plop, plop, plop. Uh, a little bit less, well, quite a bit less frequent, about, say, 50% uh, less frequent. You'd hear the plups, which represented people dying in the world. So they were, in, and, and that is the thing that is uh, the aspect of it that we're uh, setting up in uh, CMC. So you can hear the oh. birth and death cycles. It's a very simple thing, but uh, I think it's it's evocative, and it's it's interesting to kind of plug into uh, a representation of, uh, uh, well, was uh, maybe not so much musical as an important statistic, um, uh, which is uh, population explosion. Well, I was going to ask you about, you know, programming part of this installation in a, a space where the audience would be stationary, but obviously in the crystal, this was a, a sound very rarely heard by the audience, correct? Yeah, somebody will. Uh, another example of the laser directed sounds were uh, people in the approximately uh, 30 um, prominent uh, languages in Canada who are saying hello, or they're whispering hello. Uh, the whispering was particularly effective and, and natural sounding on these, these kinds of speakers because this, uh, uh, the Laser speakers don't have much in the way of bass frequencies, so it sounded good with the high frequencies of whispering. So we could have something, and, and almost all the sounds that were in there were being represented in their uh, some some in the range of their natural acoustic volume. So the Azan singer, for instance, up in the top, 
fooled people all the time. They, they thought that some guy came in regularly and, and, and sang this prayer from up there. That's fantastic. So, uh, and that was part of it. It was catching people unaware. There was another example that you would hear in the room was be fragments of well-known tunes that were whistled. And uh, that aspect uh, was quite often somewhat viral in that people in the room would start whistling, either like complete a phrase or they would just get into whistling. Whistling tends to be a little bit contagious. So there's just a sonic and psychological aspect to this. Yeah. So uh, people would be either sitting in chairs that came and went there uh, in that room. There are currently no chairs in there, and there's currently none of this sound, which... Uh, uh, I think all your listeners should complain to the ROM because it'd be very easy to turn it back on. The computer's still functional, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but people sitting in the chairs would hear these occasional whispers in their ears of, of someone saying hello or bonjour or, or uh, many different uh, uh, versions of that. Uh, and people who are walking through certain points of, of the room that were well-trafficked might also hear that kind of whispering or other things. So there were things that were quite localized. And there was another aspect of, to the room, to the, the schedule of the room through the day, uh, which was something that we called key, uh, which was uh, an arrangement of uh, uh, a... Uh, 24-part motet, in this case we made it for, I think it was 29 parts, that uh, each of the parts of the motet is sung in a different language. Again, those languages that are uh, not necessarily prominent in Canada, but just seem to be a, re a representative cross-section from the most popular languages like uh, English and French and Chinese. I'm not sure if it's still in that order, but um, uh, other uh, European and Asian languages uh, that are predominant in our culture, and also some of the indigenous languages. So we had several uh, uh, native languages that were also represented. And each of these uh, things was sung in the style of that culture uh, in the motet. So uh, Tanya Tagak, for instance, uh, who uh, was, I think her part was one of the few that was done more as a, if you can call, her style of vocalese was, uh, it didn't contain words, but most of them had uh, uh, the language of that culture and the singing style. Oh. But uh, uh, everything from Tanya Tagak to a very purely sung uh, soprano singing the original Latin version of, of this thing. And so all the voices were combined, but each one was coming out of a separate speaker. So 29 different speakers. And if you were curious or if you were somebody that, for instance, just came from another country and you'd found um, uh, a foreign city somewhat, um, uh, as, as I do here in Montreal, sometimes uh, a little bit challenging uh, language-wise, uh, you could uh, perhaps seek out a language that you're familiar with on this on one of those individual speakers in the room and, and uh, stand by that person as, as this choral piece was sung. And the choral piece popped up throughout the day about once an hour in different versions. There was uh, smaller groups in the morning uh, and on the sometimes in the half hour there'd be solo versions of just one part. 
there'd, there'd be, uh, for instance, the, the male singers uh, or the, the women singers would uh, have uh, subdivisions of the entire piece, which was sounded once uh, uh, around five o'clock before closing time at the place. So that was another aspect of it. A, t- a time to hear for here seems to be very globally minded, sort of steps into the concerns of our species a little bit. To what extent does a global social conscience inform your work? <laughs> Probably not as much as it should. I don't <laughs> think about those things very often, but I found myself in a museum uh, surrounded by dinosaurs and um, uh, a lot of uh, uh, cultural uh artifacts and activities and a lot of information that it seemed uh, very conducive to go in that direction with this particular piece to make something that perhaps didn't seem so much like art and seem more like uh, uh, a strange oral contraption that was informative uh, in a uh, uh, museum and a natural museum setting a natural and cultural museum setting, which is what the ROM is, um, without in any way being didactic. Right. It was a clock. A clock can be quite informative. Well, it, it just sounds so fascinating. I'm kind of shocked that it's no longer at the ROM. When did that happen? When, when did it stop? There have been, uh, well, two of the people who are the proponents of it were the uh, architect, uh, I'm really terrible with names, What's his name? The architect, uh, Daniel Liebskin, and uh, William Thorsell, who was the CEO at the time. And uh, uh, Liebskin was was never around, but uh, Thorsell was really running this uh, very ambitious project to make this building, and very contentious uh, project that uh, 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 he was the one person that was always fighting for all aspects of this. So uh, his particular interest in having the sound thing happening and then his his delight with the various things that were um, uh, showing up in it uh, just made it quite easy to go forth and um, and do these things uh, within a year or two uh, he had retired and uh, someone else that I never met came in in his place the person who was uh, uh, my immediate project manager, uh, Kelvin Brown, had also left by that time. Uh, his replacement was a, a fellow that I knew quite well, uh, and uh, he was given as a, a project that he didn't expect as part of his job, um, also uh, just uh, overseeing uh, this project. And at this point now, seven years later, uh, as far as I know, there's one person in the building who had any so was there when we did this, and and quite luckily did have an association with it. And he's the uh, technical director of the media program there, uh, uh, Randy uh, Dreiger, I think, and uh, and he's still there, but uh, he's having a lot of trouble as we are in just even getting uh, a conversation about the fact this exists because. It seems like most people don't know what it was, or most people who are active there now don't know what it was, or, or why bother turning this thing on. So I can't. I, for instance, cannot get 
a conversation with the secretary of the the the, the, the new CEO. Uh, uh, she always puts me on hold as soon as I, I mean, I've tried three times now. <laughs> I, I don't even get a chance to tell her who I am. She just puts me on hold. She recognizes your voice at this point. Well, I don't think it's gotten that far yet because all I've said is hello or hi. <laughs> well, it seems like it's suffering from a case of underexposure. Yeah. And uh, I'm, I'm partly going on about that and mentioning that because I know that uh, uh, Darren Copeland has made a, a great effort to have our keynote address uh, in that room with uh, that plane as an illustrated, with the a Time to Hear for Here plane as an illustrated example of uh, some, a lot of things, spatialization composition in under in an unusual setting etc cetera, etc cetera. and it's a very simple thing to do and we've got everybody on our side volunteering to just get it going and doing it and uh, for after many months uh, things don't look so great for having it happen in August but we'll, we'll I'm endeavoring to still make it happen well I'll have my fingers crossed for you the uh, the uh, Acoustic uh, Engineer Society of America has uh, also uh, lost their patience with a, an attempt to have an, a, another lecture on the same subject there uh, later this month. And they've been trying for months and they just don't get any answers. They've had to reschedule something somewhere else. So uh, 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 listen to us, Rom. It's interesting. <laughs> That's, that is a real shame. Um, I'm going to move away from the installation now and ask you a bit about okay. some of the pieces that are going to be featured. Uh, specifically, on the concert in August, we're going to feature a piece from your 1989 album, Plunderphonics, specifically the piece Dab, which mm -hmm. uses Michael Jackson's Bad as source material. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who aren't familiar, could you tell us a little bit about the concept of Plunderphonics and the legal ramifications you experience using this technique? Well, I will I will tend towards discussing the former because I'm not a, an expert on the latter. Uh, <laughs> That's there, fair. There was uh, uh, a brief skirmish over the legality of uh, DAP in the past. It's it seems to exist in the the universe of uh, being able to listen to music for free uh, quite well these days. So it's. Um, it's not much to talk about legally, but it uh, it's an example of plunderphonics, which is taking uh, uh, something that I deem or calculate to be a fairly well-known uh, piece of recorded music and transforming it in uh, ways that uh, make it uh, something different or unusual, but it's usually very apparent what the source was. So sometimes the transformations are very simple, and sometimes they're complex. And then there are other uh, plunderphonic-related things where um, sometimes many, many different sources are combined in, in unusual ways. And Dab is an example of taking one song, that being Bad, as written and sung by Michael Jackson. And... I guess uh, very soon after it was released, and I had heard it uh, uh, coming out of a passing van, I think it was, you know, somebody was playing on the radio or something, and I thought uh, it would be nice to do something that was very contemporary in, in the public sphere at that time, so I wanted to use something that was currently on, uh, on the hit parade and on the radio, and I chose 
uh, uh, that song Bad. And uh, it's a seven-minute piece that is, uh, the materials are entirely derived from that particular pop song. It, uh, I think it gets more and more complex. I had the notion that it was a bit like a, a video game where uh, as you succeed, let's say succeed in familiarity at a lower level, you're taken to a, a, a next level, which is a bit more challenging. So uh, by the end of it, it once again gets into the, the one of these uh, or several or many or thousands of these previously mentioned sound swarms where at one point you are hearing, uh, uh, I'm pretty sure it was somewhere in the neighborhood of 10,000 Michael Jacksons at once. <laughs> well, I was going to say, in the last half or so of Dab, if you heard it in a vacuum, it would be quite difficult to recognize it as coming from Michael Jackson than the front half. And yeah, sort of but how hopefully, you've been taking their, hopefully you've been taking there gradually, and then there's a bit of a return to the beginning at the end. So yes, you get into quite alien territory, but, uh, well, uh, it's interesting, the, that word alien. Uh, at one point, I was making uh, anagrams of uh, the names of the uh, people who uh, perpetrated the, uh, some of the, uh, the original material that I was using to uh, do the transformations. And in Michael Jackson's case, Michael Jackson uh, could be turned into alien chasm jock. That's perfect. So I quite often uh, think of him by that. That's my pet name for him. <laughs> I think that works pretty well, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, with Dab, to what extent do you play on expectations versus, versus reality, for example? Like, do you want the listeners to experience, like, a sense of frustration? Because sometimes you, you're like, oh, I know this song. I know where it's going. And then it's just something completely different. I'm sure that some people are frustrated with it, uh, but no, that's not, very much not my intention. Uh, I think and when I started doing this, and I have examples of these uh, plunderphonics things going back to very simple ones back in the late 60s, uh, I always thought of myself as being uh, like, like a producer. I wasn't somebody that was an active player on the song, but I was making decisions about how it would be presented. And my uh, sense of what that entailed, of what happened in a recording studio, and this is without ever having gone into a recording studio, was formed at the time that in the pop world and uh, in the classical world for the first time, uh, people were very active in uh, transforming sounds and being very collage-like and plastic, plastic, let's say, <laughs> with uh, uh, the, uh, the music, uh, even if they were just doing a, a fairly straight-ahead rock recording, they were making all sorts of decisions of how the timbres of each of those instruments sounded and doing uh, a lot of overdubbing, et cetera, et cetera. So something like Michael Jackson's Bad is very much uh, a non-performance construct it's something where some, one person comes in, lays down something, and then perhaps in another day, another month, another city, somebody else lays something on top of that. And the whole thing is, is constructed in a way that's very different from rehearsing a score or a live performance. And that sort of thing rarely happened um, 
before uh, the 60s. And in the late 60s, it really blossomed. There was all sorts of things going on. So whether it was Stockhausen or the Beatles, mm-hmm. uh, which yeah, which there is a quite a direct connection. If you look at Sergeant Pepper, there's there's Carl Heinz Stockhausen standing in the back row oh my on, the, on the cover. Uh, well, along with a lot of people, I think they, they they're cutouts. They're all cutouts and you know, mannequins. It's everybody from Tarzan to Mae West and. I think, uh, if I remember correctly, they had Hitler in there, but uh, somebody insisted they take him out. Uh, uh, Stockhausen's there, so and they were all people that were distinct uh, characters, or in uh, in some way um, seemed to be important, whether uh, villainously important or musically important uh, uh, to the Beatles. So uh, Stockhausen was doing extremely interesting things through the 50s and 60s uh, and things that um, were uh, precursors to my own plunderphonic efforts. His huge piece, uh, Hymnin, is uh, all based on uh, materials generated from uh, the anthems of the various countries around the world. Yes, that's a fantastic piece. I love that. And it has a lot of shortwave radio in it. And I, I like shortwave radio. So that was something I listened to a lot. Uh, so Dab, my version of Bad, uh, in a way, just takes the methods that were being used uh, to make a pop song and um, pushing them around a bit, making uh, what eventually it would be called an alternate mix or a remix. Um, according to my own uh, aesthetic tastes and, and interest in uh, a developmental structure and things like that. Uh, but still, just trying to make something, you know, I was trying to make a better version of the song than, than uh, uh, Quincy Jones made. Uh, was was uh, Michael's active and, and uh, 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 knowing uh, uh, partner in producing this, whereas I was just somebody who was, I guess, a renegade producer who decided without asking that I was going to produce it. Well, since the late 80s, when Dab first came out, things have really gone digital. Uh, we're kind of in the era of mashup and DJ culture. So mm-hmm. do you think popular music can continue to play a part in installation art and concert music going forward? So did you use the term pop-up? Mashup. Mashup. Ah, so I didn't hear mashup. <laughs> Pat, uh, mashup and DJ culture. Yeah. Uh, uh, so you have to uh, say the question again. I'm sorry because I just got stuck on pop-up music. Like <laughs> pop-up okay. music. There's pop music and there's pop-up music. Well, I'm not really sure what pop-up music would mean either, actually. Interesting. So before you ask the question, I would, I would say that... Uh, Given uh, just the introduction of terminology, in the the 80s when things like the Fairlight Sampler came along and uh, the Synclavier, that idea of sampling, of taking a bit of music and having uh, a bit of a recording and having that as available something was a common term. Um, That would predate my coming up with the term plunderphonics, which I think I used for the first time in 1985. Uh, and then the term mashup is a uh, something that showed up in well, really in the mid '90s as a term for uh, some things that uh, I don't think I ever did anything that anybody would have 
distinctly called a proto mashup or what something that, that was also called bastard pop at the time just taking elements of two different songs and putting them together so you get a new pop song that uh, uh, seems like both of them at once in a Frankenstein kind of way. Uh, a guy named uh, Trademark, Mark Gunderson, uh, did a very good uh, uh, pre-mashup, but using that technique in the early 90s, that was a combination of uh, Herb Alpert and the Tijuana Brass, and if I remember correctly, um, Public Enemy. Uh, so that sort of thing is uh, a subset of uh, what I tend to call a genre, which is the plunderphonics thing of if you take some kind of music and you change it around, you're doing plunderphonics. Mm -hmm. So it's just. So, so your question was? <laughs> well, ultimately, without all the background to it, my question is do you think popular music in the way that. I heard it, it again. I heard you say pop up. Popular, popular, popular music. music. Ah, okay, got it. I've, <laughs> I've heard of that term. Popular. Sorry. I have no idea what it is. I haven't seemed to be able to make any popular music, but I know, I know that term. <laughs> well, you've used popular music in your works, though, because bad is a piece of popular music, of course. And yes. do you think that popular music can continue to play a role in installation art and concert music when? sort of people's mashups and their mixes are all kind of available online for free and it doesn't seem to be as much of an issue anymore. Like in 1990, you were given a notice by the Canadian Recording Industry Association to destroy all copies of Plunderphonics. And if you mm. said that to most young people now, someone who's 15, 16, they'd think that that was sort of an outrageous idea because things are so accessible in the digital age. So mm. I'm wondering if you think that this type of thing that's become so ingrained with popular music still has a place in concert music and in installation art? Well, I, I have, uh, I am not going to have an opinion about whether it uh, has a, a social role or anything like that. I just do these things for musical reasons. Uh, and, and, uh, 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 in the, in the same kind of spirit as a lot of musicians, you say, no, I just play, man. <laughs> and that's, a, uh, that's perfectly legit. It's for the sense of the music. Now, uh, there was a, a similar thought when uh, there were those legal th threats, which I, I think you uh, described uh, fairly uh, succinctly and clearly, that, yeah, it's crazy to say and destroy all copies. I, in fact... Part of the, the deal that I happily made with them uh, was that they got to destroy the, the digital master tape, which in fact was inconsequential because each of the CDs was a clone of the digital master tape. It was well the, the, the umatic <laughs> tape that was made to make the CD. And uh, it had already gotten out there. And uh, I was uh, lucky in convincing them uh, or fortunate in convincing them that there was no need to go after the people that already had it. It would have been interesting if they did, if they managed to get the FBI on uh, the radio stations that were playing this, because I know in some cases they said they were just going to batten down the hatches and fight it out. So uh, it would have made for a, a, a much more public discussion, I think, if uh, I hadn't got them to agree that all they were going to focus on was me and the copies that I had remaining. Uh, and what was quite 
great with, uh, for me in that in making that decision that they would only destroy all my copies is the word got out that I didn't have any more copies to give away for free. And uh, as now, uh, back, uh, but more so back then, it, uh, uh, it wasn't free to make CDs. You had to manufacture this physical project and it, product and it cost money. So it was costing me money to give away CDs for free. And part of the argument that the uh, record industry uh, lobbying groups had was that I was unfair com competition for their uh, the things that they were trying to sell, which wow. uh, which seemed uh, silly in that uh, uh, I, I think they were aware that I, I wasn't independently wealthy and I couldn't just continue to make CDs for free forever and give them away. But when I was taken out of that distribution business, people found ways to redistribute it. Uh, one way is through the airwaves. Another way that was the most uh, practical back then was really making cassette copies of the things and uh, mailing them to people. And there was uh, uh, several networks of these things called uh, copyright violation squads in various cities that would, if you sent them a, a cassette and a stamped envelope with your address on, they'd send you a copy of the thing back. And then this would be around 1990. Uh, a few years later, CDRs became um, uh, available and um, slightly affordable. They were pretty expensive in the beginning, but people started making CDRs, and then there was bootleg copies of this thing. And, uh, and the, the best examples, they continued in the spirit of what I did and gave those things away for free. There were people that were selling things. but Well, despite their best efforts, it still remains very accessible if you want to hear it. Oh, yes, it's so much more accessible now. Uh, MIT put it online around 95, uh, uh, probably unbeknownst to the institution, but it was part of their uh, file system there. And for many years, you could uh, download uh, uh, AIF copies of all the tracks from there. And uh, there hasn't been a moment since then when it isn't freely available on the internet. Awesome. So it hasn't gone out of print, in a sense. Now, I think there's something about it that really captures people's imaginations, I guess. Now, the reason we are uh, presenting DAB in August, it being an old moldy track from 20 years ago, and the odd thing is, I guess, the three pieces we're talking about are from a span of about 20 years, but it's a span of 20 years that uh, has uh, is now 25 years ago. Uh, <laughs> Uh, is that I've been working on, and I was just looking at some of the stuff this morning, uh, a, a video complement to uh, DAB, a music video, kind of like an MTV video for it. And back in the 80s, another thing that was happening that was changing uh, the pop music scene in particular was uh, the amount of attention, and uh, both by the public and by uh, uh, producers and musicians, to make videos to accompany their music. So uh, a lot of things that before had been predominantly oral experiences, listening to recordings, you'd listen to them on a radio or on a record, and you might stare at the record cover as a visual complement to the record, but you didn't watch synced, uh, um, time-based images with the music in most cases. 
unless it was Hollywood musicals or uh, a few other examples. And then with the arrival of MTV and then much music in Canada, suddenly everything had a visual component. And uh, I guess for at least a couple of reasons, I didn't do any music videos. Uh, I wasn't equipped. And uh, after spending uh, what was seemed like tons of money on audio equipment over the years, I uh, wasn't very interested in getting into video production at that point also. And uh, the comparable video systems that you could uh, run in the early 90s uh, where I was shifting to digital audio were incredibly frustrating and slow compared to working purely in audio. So in 1990, when uh, Pro Tools was introduced, uh, I'd been working for a year or two in its, its uh, predecessor, Sound Designer, which was a stereo thing. Uh, and you could mix tracks in Sound Designer, but you wouldn't mix them in real time. You would do a render, as people are quite familiar with who uh, make movies on, on computers. And that render would take a period of time. So usually I think if I had uh, a five-minute, four-track render that I wanted in stereo, I would get the computer going and it, it, I, would, I would go away for an hour and it would make that rendering and then I would listen to it and then I'd make some adjustments and make another rendering. So it was very slow. But by... Uh, and then 91, they introduced Pro Tools, but it really was frustrating. didn't work very well, so I had bought it but didn't use it for about a year. And then they did a complete overhaul on that. And Pro Tools became, for me, a usable thing with uh, the ability to time slip things and everything in about 92. And uh, I was, again, working in 4Track, as I had been in the early 70s at Simon Fraser University. But I was working in digital on 4Track. It was a, a different thing. And it was, it, was, it was pretty great, but video was still, you had to render everything, and you're always waiting for everything. So I didn't do any video, partly for that reason, and partly because it's, it's nice having sounds that, um, that you don't associate at least solely with one visual image. Uh, now, 20, I guess we are talking almost 20, well, let's say 20 years later, a couple decades later, uh, the video processing stuff is about as facile and um, flexible as the audio stuff was, um, well, at least back then. Uh, and so it's gotten more interesting. And I've started in the last year or two to make videos to some of these tracks from back in the 80s. And I've been having a lot of fun doing it. And Deb is kind of a major example in that I've gotten kind of ambitious with this one. Uh, Deb took me about a month of long hours to put together. And uh, I, uh, I, I probably will have to devote about a month to the video thing. So in a way, it's a, an interesting parallel, 25 years apart of, of working method. Just happens to be visual and audio, and hopefully the two will seem to fit together really in an interesting way. So we'll find out at uh, Sound Travels in August. So it was really a matter of the technology becoming accessible for you to want to explore the video aspect of your pieces. Yeah, that was half of it, and just I was maybe a bit more of a curmudgeon when I was younger, and uh, and liked the purity of pure audio, 
And now I'm quite often fascinated by how people are used to consuming things and how to uh, do something interesting in that context. And that, I realize, is something similar to plunder phonics. Uh, plunder phonics, in a sense, was my uh, trying to make something that could be associated with what most people thought of as being normal music, or in a lot of cases, what they would just call music, and that a lot of the things that I found interesting, like something like hymnon, they would say, that's not music, that's noise. And I have no great proficiency on any musical instrument, so I've never been able to play normal music in a way somebody would say, oh, yes, isn't that a pretty tune? Uh, uh, so playing with things that were pretty tunes and doing something that I thought interesting with them was in a way a way of expanding or diverting uh, something that at least started at a point of recognition. Uh, and it's the same thing uh, with these video things. Uh, 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 people pay a lot of attention these days to stuff they find on YouTube, for instance. And, you, and uh, uh, just to name one example of the platforms that you can uh, distribute videos on, on, on the net. And it's a very easy uh, publishing platform. It's also a very easy place to do the sort of thing I've been doing uh, that I was doing a lot in uh, uh, 25 years ago, which is distributing your stuff for free. I can distribute distribute my stuff for free on these platforms. So do you have an official, I mean, you must have an official YouTube channel to direct people to? There, uh, there Well, there's several of them. And there is a, a Plunderphonics channel that's pretty easy to find if you can just remember Plunderphonics. On, on YouTube, and that's a pretty good place to start for uh, things that have a visual component. There's only uh, not many more than a half a dozen, including, well, there's more than half a dozen because there's at least uh, six uh, versions of the theme song of The Simpsons <laughs> with, with different featured saxophone soloists. Uh, uh, but otherwise, there's another handful of, of tracks that are available now but they they cover an interesting range from there's a couple of uh glenn gould performances uh, there is uh dolly parton excellent performance of her back in 1973 all plunderphonic stuff worth checking out very cool all right i think we covered a lot of ground and i'm more excited than ever to hear your work in august Thank you so much for your time, John. Thank you, Becca. That was my conversation with composer John Oswald. For more information on our Sound Travels Festival of Sound Art and the upcoming concert featuring works by John Oswald and Paul Dolden, go to nasa.ca. That's N-A-I-S-A dot C-A. 